What did you eat for breakfast? Peanut butter toast <laughs> and coffee. Always coffee. I could forgo the toast and just have the coffee. You are listening to the Music on Your Own Terms podcast. Business. Business. This episode is sponsored by the Skinny Armadillo Print Company located in Fort Worth, Texas. Now, due to the current situation, with all live music being essentially stopped, it'll come as no surprise to many people listening to this show that musicians, and especially their support crew and management teams, have found their income dramatically reduced. That's why the Skinny Armadillo has set up a website to support artists called Music for Good. You can purchase a specially designed t-shirt for this cause and $10 from that t-shirt will be donated to any band or artist of your choice. You can also donate money as well as purchasing the shirt. All you need to do is go to musicforgood.itemorder.com. That's musicforgood.itemorder.com. And of course, there'll be a link to the website on musiconyourownterms.com with the show notes and also in the social media posts for this episode. Make sure you stay up to date with the podcast, including finding out who I'll be interviewing next by signing up for the mailing list at musiconyourownterms.com. There you'll also find show notes for every episode, some pretty cool videos to check out from various guests, and also links to their music and social media if you want to find out more. While you're there, don't forget to take a peek at the store and pick up something for your grandma. And finally, I'd really appreciate it if you leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps the podcast get in front of more people just like you who want to learn from the successes, strategies, and failures of artists and entrepreneurs that I talk to. I really feel that the information coming from those guests is exceedingly valuable for the musicians community and anyone wanting to pick up tips from other people's experiences. Welcome to episode 57 of the Music on Your Own Terms podcast. This time out, I talked to Scott Harnish, a music teacher, multi-instrumentalist, producer engineer, and Gene Simmons impersonator based in Nova Scotia, Canada, that also happens to be married to Elise Bessler, who I talked to in episode 42. We discussed Scott's new EP, his band Fluid, and the bands that inspire him. We also hear that on one of the most recent Kiss cruises, Scott happened to meet previous guest Nikki Sin that we heard from all the way back in episode 2 with Tester. We also learn how he and Elise met through being mutual fans of a Canadian blues rock band called Wide Mouth Mason. I dig these guys, I highly recommend you go check them out. This is all of course interspersed with us waxing philosophical about 80s hair metal. So let's do it up. Welcome to another episode of the Music on Your Own Terms podcast. Joining me today is Scott Harnish, multi-instrumentalist, singer-songwriter, 
producer engineer and just happens to be the husband of Elise Bessler, who you heard back in episode 42. How you doing? Pretty good. Awesome. So uh, how's uh, how's um, the lockdown treating you? You surviving? It's fa- it's it's a it's going okay. I miss playing live, um, because I would do that two or three times, two, three, four times a week, depending upon the week. And right. uh, most of my friend circle is musicians that I'm that I play with on a regular basis. So not. Oh, you know what? I forgot in your intro to mention Gene Simmons in person. That, that is true. Yeah. Yes. And you're sporting a Kiss uh, hoodie as this well. This is actually uh, from the most recent cruise. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> let's. I mean, before we get into your background, let's talk about that real quick. Because, uh, yeah, the very first uh, band I interviewed, Testa, out of Framingham, Mass, was at the most recent cruise, and uh, yeah, I mean, I again, lot thousands of people on that cruise, but uh, Chucky did the drum off. Uh, was it Eric Singer? Eric, Eric would have been the. I think Eric was there, and I think uh, I, I mentioned before we started. I didn't go and watch it, but it. it, it I think he was there, and uh, oh, why do I always forget his name? The dr- Slash's drummer was on board. Oh, okay. Because he plays with Bruce Kulick. Bruce Kulick did a mm. did a like a solo solo thing, and he's okay. he had Todd and Todd and is it? I can never remember if it's Brent or Brett. I think it's Brett. It's terrible. They're right. Canadians. I should know. <laughs> and I, so I think yeah, they so, were both um, there as judges. Yeah, I mean, if uh, if you saw, I, I would think um, Nikki, the bass player from Tester, is the most uh, visually recognizable. He's got you know a ton of tattoos. He's actually got a tattoo of uh, I think either the Darkness or uh, the singer of the Darkness somewhere because I, I I've seen him uh, sporting that. Um, but he also has like implanted fangs or something but anyway he's got red hair his wife's got red hair anyway it's that's you, nikki you you're talking about nikki sin nikki sin i'm friends yeah. with him on facebook oh sweet yeah <laughs> i've so, been friends with him on facebook for i years. just like to bring things full circle because yeah <laughs> it was as soon as you um, said the implants i'm like he's talking about nikki yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So, totally, yeah, yeah. Uh, great great uh, great guys um just wanted to bring it full circle because yeah. uh, they were my first interview that's really cool um you know they're really cool guys. So yeah, Nikki was. I think Nikki's been on pretty much every single cruise. He's been on that every cruise that I've been right. on, uh, yeah. and I don't know him super super well. But I, I, um, the first cruise that I went on, I the, the two guys that I went with are uh, fellow members of the, the tribute band that I'm in. Yep. And so and they had already been previously, um, and they, you know, they're both they're both really kind of outgoing and gregarious people, and mm-hmm. uh, so like. The first year I was there, I got introduced to like, oh, you got to meet this guy, and you got to meet this guy, and you got to meet this guy. And then the next year that I went back, they're like, do you remember this guy? And I'm like, kind of. <laughs> and it wasn't it wasn't because of the, you know the person not being memorable. It was just like, there's two thousand people on the boat, oh yeah, and they're all Kiss fans, and everybody's crazy, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So it's uh it's yeah. a good time. Absolutely. All right, so yeah, let's let's go way back and uh, discover, you know. How you got into how you got into music in the first place? Actually, we haven't even done a proper intro. Could you tell you know tell everyone what you do on a day to day basis and you know how you make your living? Uh, well, one we're not in a international health crisis such as such mm-hmm. as we are now. I'm a I'm a uh, uh, a gig in, for lack of a better term, a top forty band. Um, that's that's a huge part of 
my my weekly existence. Um, mm-hmm. Here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, we've got uh, a fairly thriving live music scene that allows for, um, you know, at least on the cover side of things, there's a, there's an ability there to 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 generate a partial living out of cool. out of that. I don't travel out of the city a whole lot, um, not because I don't want to, but because I don't have to. Right. And it's and it's uh, uh, so there's that, and then I I uh, I teach guitar as well. Uh, and I teach a little bit of bass, um, cool. and yeah, that's that's really what I do. I make I make records as often as I can, whether it's for myself or or with other people. Um, mm-hmm. I I would like to do more of that, but you know that's all. There's not a whole lot of money in making records on the back end of it in terms of selling it and stuff like that. So it's got to be with somebody that's sure. already you know implementing a putting out. They're putting out an album for a reason if it's into their strategy. And I just happen mm-hmm. to be the right guy for them. Right, for sure. Um, and then, so how did you get into music and then subsequently recording? Uh, I don't, It's a, that's a funny question because I don't really remember not ever being into music, like as a fan. Um, I, there, were, there was music around all the time when I was a kid. Um, my, both of, two, both of my mother's brothers both played music. Um, one of one of the two of them professionally, and that was what he did when I was a kid. He he you know he toured around, and, and uh, they lived in a different city anyway. But even you know even when we were when we were there, there wasn't a good ch- there was a good chance that he wouldn't even necessarily be there because he was often actually in the U.S. He spent a lot of time in in Connecticut, and he spent a lot of time in Washington State. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was a there's a big story about an Alaskan tour <laughs> that I've only ever heard dribs and t- t- you know little bits and pieces of, but. Um, so the idea of being a musician was not something that was frowned upon in my family. I guess you could say it was just, you know, that was something you did. And the other, the other uncle, um, is a professional artist and painter. That's, you know, that's what he's done in entire career. So just being creative in general was, was, you know, something that was encouraged, I guess you could say, uh, Hmm. my first actual foray into playing music uh, here in Nova Scotia, they used to have a. Uh, this is a gentleman by the name of Chalmers Doan who implemented a, a ukulele program. Okay. Uh, in the city schools, and so in grade like grade two or three, you could go and and you you know get your ukulele and then you'd, and then you'd, mm. you'd be in this be in the school band. I have two really funny memories of that. Um, one being the day that I got the ukulele because I had seen and interacted with a dreadnought acoustic guitar before. Um, so in my head, I'm like, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to play, you know, and of course, uh, ukulele and a guitar, while they're from the same family of instruments, they don't sound anything alike one another. And I remember getting this little soprano ukulele and being really mad that it didn't sound like, you know, I'm, I think my uncle had like a, a you know, a, a Gibson hummingbird or something like that, like a big, you know, mm-hmm. as a seven year old, something that sounded really monstrous, um, so that was the first part. The second part was that we, through that course, learned, you know, it was all picking songs from what I remember. And uh, you had to learn to read the notes. Well, I can read fine now, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason, I had a really hard time with it at the time. And they did a, a group concert that was all of the kids from all the schools, like in a, in a, in a particular district. And we all gathered because it was the same teacher and they gathered us all into the, this gymnasium of the school. And we 
I don't even remember what songs we performed, but we it was the ukulele choir. And mm-hmm. I would have been eight probably at that point. And I remember my parents saying to me afterwards, like, you didn't play a note, did you? <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't, I couldn't remember. Because I don't think, right. I think, I think we had to learn it off the sheet. And then I, and then, and then I had always had a hard time with remembering and, and understanding the notes. But I don't think we had the sheet music in front of us on stage. We just had to have it memorized. And I didn't do that either. So I was just like mm. pretending to play, you know. Yeah, good times. Good, good, good prep. Awesome. Good setup for the for uh, uh, doing Kiss, I guess. Pretending. <laughs> sure. So I mean, you know, going going from ukulele to, you know, wh- when did you start really focusing on learning? Gu- did you learn guitar first and then move on to other instruments, or did you like pick up bits and pieces? Here, uh, I, the 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 short answer is yes. Um, the longer answer is that there was a there was a brief dabbling with saxophone in grade six um and i was petrified to play in the school christmas concert that Mm -hmm. that first that first year and so i was given a choice i either had to do the do the concert or or give up saxophone and and to me at the Mm -hmm. time i'm sure i was still you know that's not really that many years later than the ukulele incident i i think i was Mm. dealing with uh uh like yeah no this is i'm just not gonna do it you know that was that was an easier choice than than, right. than facing uh, than facing the fear of of being on stage, despite the fact that I'm sure that none of us were any good. You know how good are you in grade right. six? You know playing there's lots of squeaks and squawk going on back then. Um, but it wasn't long after that that I really got into guitar, mm-hmm. and I was already a fan of the guitar as an instrument anyway. Um, you know my dad had the first Boston album in his record collection. And I remember finding that as a kid, and you know, the cover is a spaceship that looks like a guitar, right. um, which was just cool. And then I happened to really dig the music on it. Um, and then uh, I remember taking somebody else in the family had an acoustic guitar, and I and there was like a two week at night, you know, for you'd go for half an hour or whatever a group class, and you'd, you'd learn. And all I remember learning out of that was was Ode to Joy, which is really funny because I teach that now to kids when they're learning how to play. <laughs> Um, but I was like, you know, this is, this is really cool. I really want to do this. And so then that Christmas, my parents bought me an electric guitar and then it was the following summer that I, I started taking lessons again in a group format, but I was like really stuck with it. And I think, um, I wasn't into sports, you know, we're Canadian, Mm -hmm. so we watch hockey all the time, but it it was, I just never really felt connected to it or driven to, to compete in, in that sort of thing. And so I think my parents were really concerned that, that there was, you know, they were worried what my thing was going to be, you know, because mm-hmm. they, they foresaw me growing up and becoming a hoodlum or something. So, um, right. but for me, the memory is that I always wanted to play music. I don't ever remember it not being, you know, awesome. the thing that I wanted to do. And somehow or other, there was, you know, I don't have I don't have specific thoughts of like trying to formulate a plan, but I do remember thinking like, this is what I'm, you know, this is what I'm going to do, sure. you know. Cool. So, what was that first guitar? Uh, it was a Harmony from the Sears catalog. Um, and I actually, <laughs> I actually at that point in time, because I asked for it for Christmas, I wanted a bass. Uh, now, I didn't necessarily know what the difference was between a bass and a guitar, but uh, I had gotten into Motley Crue through, okay. through a circle of friends. Um, and specifically, the album showed at the devil. And uh, one of my friends that, had the had the the album um had a had a you know an above ground pool and a deck and so in the summertime we would go and hang out at his pool because they had the pool so 
And he right. also had tennis rackets. And so I remember he'd put on a ghetto blaster. And uh, I'm dating myself by using that term, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And we would, uh, you know, we would put on music and we would like lip sync, you know, and have have fun to it. But on the cassette copy of Shout at the Devil, as is the case now, I think, with the CD ratio, instead of having the, the pentagram on the cover, there was the, the four pictures of them. Mm-hmm. And he knew enough to know who Vince was, Vince Neil. And so he was like, well, I want to be the center of attention. And he just pointed, right. and he just randomly pointed at somebody, says, you get to be this guy. Well, that guy happened to be Nikki Six. So, um, I didn't, you know, I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, and we would see the videos, you know, and be like, well, he looks cool in the videos. And then I'd start going, okay, well, he plays bass. Start reading, you know, reading in magazines, he plays bass. I still didn't know what that meant, but comes time to, to, to get an instrument at Christmas time. I'm like, I want a bass guitar, but my parents had put a budget on how much I was allowed to ask for. And I did the math and the, and I think the, the bass was $200. And the, they sold this tiny little plastic amp. There was only one amp that they sold, and, and it was $50. My parents said I could get $200. Well, the guitar, they had, a, they had a two pickup guitar and a one pickup guitar. Well, the one pickup guitar was $150. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, if I get a bass, I can't get an amp. But if I get the one pickup guitar, right. I can get the amp. And that was that was how it started. <laughs> wow. How, how bad was that guitar? Uh, not great, but it's what I started taking lessons on. Uh, I sold it in high school, regretfully, um, mm. to somebody else who needed an instrument. And I, you know, I was like, by that point, I had a better guitar. And uh, relatively recently, I played at a bar and uh, mounted to the wall was the same guitar, but with mm-hmm. all the all the electronics pulled out of it. Right. And there was a little thing in my head when I wonder if that's my guitar. Like I'd <laughs> love to know, and 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 you know. The only way that you could prove it, I guess, was be that I remember I had some sort of Dayglo bumps bumper sticker that I'd stuck in the back of it. I don't remember what it said, but right. they're not going to let me go in and take the guitar off the wall. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, um, so when 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 did you start to make a living music? Was it right out of like high school or did you uh, college or no? In terms of it being my, think about that for a second. Um, it's never been far away in terms of it being an active process for me, but in terms of it becoming my complete and utter focal point, I guess it really depends upon what you consider making a living from music. Um, because I've, everything's kind of gone in stages. I worked in, I worked in musical instrument retail for a long time. Uh So, um, if you count that, then... 22 years, I guess I was, I was in my early, early twenties when I started working in that, that environment, but it wasn't until, uh, it'll be 10 years ago in September that I stopped doing the retail thing and and totally went into teaching. Um, so, so that would be when it's been, I would, I would say that my primary method of, of employment has come from having an instrument in my hands. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think it. I think it totally counts. You're still actively working with the product. Yeah, I think. I think people get a lot really hung up on. You know, well, I, I'm gonna make money from my art, but you know, I I personally work for a t-shirt company, um, and you know, we work with bands and artists, and it's really really great. I spent 18 years in a non-music, like no way, shape, or form was it, you know, in 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 
any t- type of uh, music sense. So being able to work with uh, bands and artists now is, is, you know, everything I do is music related mm-hmm. in some way. So I think it's really cool. Um, great. So what, to that respect, what has changed now you're in lockdown? Are you still teaching? Are you able to? We're still teaching. We're using Zoom as our, as our, okay, cool. our, our platform. Um, my teaching time is split. Um, before we were in lockdown, I, I there's a, um, I teach out of the house anyway. Mm-hmm. Lisa and I run our own business out of the house, but we, we weren't really set up in terms of space um, and isolation of space to have both of us teaching in, in the house at the same time. Sure. So uh, uh, I taught for, so in Canada, there's a, a music chain called Lon McQuaid, which is uh, where I worked in retail and, and, and in our local market for the company that preceded it that they bought out. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I moved into teaching, initially it was all through them. And I still do some some teaching through them. Uh, point that I'm getting to is that not all of the students that I have there decided to carry over with the online lessons. Um, okay. And whereas everybody that I taught here, at, I was already teaching out of the home studio, is is still with me. They've you know everybody's mm-hmm. carried along, so to speak. Awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I I want to comment on it more, but I don't want to I don't want to say anything negative about anybody. So, oh sure, no, <laughs> I, I don't encourage that. Um, so how did you get into producing? Was it just like a necessity to get your music down, mm. or did you do? Did you? I I think I read somewhere that you uh, you did a music production course, or am I getting that is that right? Up? No, that is true. So I I got uh uh when I was seventeen, I got a four track. Mm-hmm. A Yamaha four track recorder, uh, which I had, I, which I had not the specific model, but I had delved into doing that before. Um, my uncle that I keep referring to had one as a, a, a you know, had one, a Fostex one when I was growing up, which I was never allowed to use, but I was really curious about it. <laughs> I remember being down at their house and being like, can I try this out? And of course, you know, he's like, well, you know, it's gear. You'd probably spend a lot of money on it back then, you know? Right. Um, but then my first real band in uh that was a band that i joined um between ninth and tenth grade they were already together and then myself and my and my friend alan who's who's a drummer um joined joined these guys and then they already had some songs so we picked up a couple songs that they were already playing and then we wrote some songs and we did our, our for my first demo experience which was we rented a four track machine and we, re- we recorded a demo um which was awesome because it's like, you know, at that point I'd done a little bit of recording because I used to do, it's funny, Dave, there's a Dave Grohl quote about this, but I, when I read it, I was like, I used to do the exact same thing. I would take, I had a, you know, a, a ghetto blaster, a radio cassette radio mm-hmm. player um, with built-in microphones. So you could record onto it. And so what I would do is I would play onto yep. this tape and then I would move the tape and put it into my dad's cassette player through his stereo system. And then I would do the process again. Uh, what's funny about that process is that what I didn't understand at the time, and, and now I totally understand, is that cassette players in particular are not particularly well calibrated. So mm-hmm. the speed <laughs> of his tape deck was faster than the speed of my Ghetto Blaster. Probably not by much, but enough. Right. So after yep. three or four times, you'd have to retune the guitar up, which with a floating <laughs> whammy bar did not go very well. <laughs> 
so that was kind of how I first got into recording anyways and uh, and you know my my parents again I should I they really they're the they're the my parents are the ones that deserve a lot of credit for um not only allowing me but encouraging me to become a musician and and uh providing me with a lot of the early exposure to to, to gear not that they knew anything about it I was the one that would come in and be like well I need this you know I can remember asking for a, a boss delay pedal that was 200 bucks and they were like what right. you know <laughs> and, um, what does that do and then uh, uh, so I got a, I got a four track and got really into it and then a few years later uh, when I was in my 20s and out on my own I through some other circumstances I ended up getting my first drum machine and, mm-hmm. and actually learning songs learning drum parts from records and programming them in into the machine uh and being like well geez that means i could you know write my own parts like i could i could demo fuller songs and so that was what got me into um the idea of recording this would have been the early early mid 90s um and by that point i was uh i was a father very young father and uh was really confused and lost. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't working in music. I wasn't living in the same area of the city that I grew up in. I was not hanging out with my friends. I was working a minimum wage job and trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to pay rent. Mm-hmm. Um, but through that process, I was like, well, this is really cool. And then ended up in a situation where I, I had to make a change. Um, and the idea of going to recording school came up. And so I investigated a number of schools, and I ended up going to a, a school in Toronto that's still there called the Harris Institute. When I was there, I think it was called Harris Institute for the Arts, and then they've since shortened it. But it's the same, you know, it's the same, mm-hmm. same school. And my intake class, we were by this point in time in the recording industry. Uh, Pro Tools was around, but hard disk recording was still kind of an—I don't want to say a novelty, but it was still really new. So it right. wasn't something that a lot of people were delving into. Uh, but ADATs were around. That was, mm-hmm. that was the big thing. So my intake, so that particular school they do, a, it's a 12-month course, and they, they do three, it's three terms a year. So mm-hmm. every four months, there's a whole new crop of kids coming in. We started, I happened to, I started in a course that started in July. So you know if you're going to go to school in July, you're amongst people that really want to be there. Uh, right. And we were the last, my, my term, we were the last ones to actually use the two-inch two analog tape. And then the guys that awesome. came right behind us used digital tape, digital cassette tapes, really. Right. So that was how I got into recording and producing. <laughs> but the motivation for all that initially, aside from the, aside from just you know, kind of finding out that you could even do that, was you'd read all these stories about guys being signed to record labels, and we, and I should frame this in the in the sense that we had just gone through the grunge revolution, where I had been totally into hair metal. And there were other bands mm-hmm. that, that that were not part of that that I was into, and and as as more and more bands that became known as grunge came along, specifically Soundgarden and Alice in Chains were the two that I got, really got into. Me too. But you'd start reading all these stories about how the about how the the record labels were like big evil behemoths that you know wanted to control everything mm-hmm. you did, and that you and that you didn't get to play the music you wanted. And I was young, young enough, but old, but also old enough to have a, a really strong opinion about what it was I thought I wanted to do musically. And so it was like, well, I'm just going to become a producer then and I can produce my own records and nobody can tell me what to do. Right. <laughs> which, which is another, mm-hmm. a, kind of a terrible reason to take on as much debt as I took on to go to that school. But <laughs> Right. That's awesome. Um, so how, how did you and Elise um, meet? Because that, that's, you know, I just, 
kind of a fantastic setup having a singer and a, and a producer slash guitar player. How did that we, all start? Well, there's a band from uh, uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which is a, yep. a city in Western Canada, called Widemouth Mason. I've heard of them. They're, I like those guys. Yeah, those, they're, yeah they're, a, they're a, for lack of a better term, they're a blues rock band. I mean, yeah. they've got like seven or eight records out and, and every record's been a little different. Um, and they've mm-hmm. been putting records out for 24 years now. So it's, you know, it's a long time. Anyway, their first, uh, their first record came out, their first major label record came out in the late 90s. And they had a, uh, and I kind of got really into them. I thought they were you know, a great band. I actually still remember the first time I heard them on the radio, and it was just one of those moments where it was like there was something about the sound of the band. I was like, "They're a blues trio," and sure enough, that's mm-hmm. that was what they were. But they had this was also the early days of social uh, social media, and so they had a fan forum, you know, bulletin board, right, where you could go on and you could type. Um, and Elise is from Edmonton, Alberta, and she would see those guys like she saw those guys live before they were ever known outside of mm-hmm. the, the western part of the country because that was that was one of the cities they would play on a regular basis uh and she, and how we met funny enough she had made her first record um which is a kind of a more of a it's got a bit of an urban vibe to it i guess you could say okay different than the stuff that she's released since that i've worked on but she had to uh, uh she used to be really afraid of flying and she was mm-hmm. flying from Edmonton to Vancouver to have the album uh, mastered. And she was just posted, you know, there was a section on the fan forum where you could talk about anything that didn't have to do with the band. And and, and she expressed this fear of flying. She's like, you know, she'd flown to Vancouver before, but it was just, you know, anxiety is strange, right? So she mm-hmm. posted about it and nerdy me goes on and I go, well, you know, it's simple. And I start explaining the differences between in air velocity over and under the wings and lift and all this stuff. And that was, that was really how we met. And then there were other people on the form that we were both kind of friendly with. And, uh, I think they thought it was cute that we were two musicians that had kind of struck up this, this friendship online. Mm-hmm. And then it, uh, that parlayed into, uh, we would have, uh, do you remember ICQ? Yes. Yeah. I was an ICQ <laughs> user. Definitely. So we would have we would have these big group chats on ICQ that were because it was just it was real time you know rather than having yep. to deal with the, the the forum posts or whatever and we would and we would mm-hmm. you know sort of gather and and uh, for me it was a really late night thing because they're you know three hour most of them were in Alberta and it's three hours earlier yeah. than it is here um, yeah and that was that was how we met awesome. it was just just through that yeah I met actually met my wife. Not not too similarly. It was through a mutual contact, but we met online. So Oz was uh, AOL Instant Messenger. There you go. So, but I had I yeah I had the ICQ. I had there was a couple of other ones that died. I think, but yeah, definitely familiar with that stuff. The, that's really cool. the really funny thing about that story for us is is there's two two parts to that story. One, um, Sean Vero, who's the the lead guitar player, singer in Wine with Mason, knows that story now because we've. He might not remember it now, but it's been a number of years. We met him at a at a, at a show and told him yeah. the story. Um, I can't remember what the other thing was. I was going to say <laughs> it was. Oh, I know what it was. That's long enough ago that I remember saying to people like, "Oh yeah, I met my wife online," and they would look at you like you had two heads. Mm-hmm. Right nowadays, everybody meets online. 
Yep. Right. Like I have, you know, some yeah, good, was... some younger friends of mine. It's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I went on a date with this girl. Oh, how'd you meet her? Tinder. It's always Tinder. Right. Or whatever. I know there's another app now out too, other than that one. But it's just like, <laughs> just go to the go yeah. out. You know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, back then there was a stigma to it. There were no dating sites. Yeah, I totally feel that. That's that's funny. Yeah. So is this? So you just released an album or an EP? Sorry. Um, it's under Ellison Scott. So Ellison Scott, like a stage it's a, name it's a stage name, but it is also my name. So my, my okay. first name is actually Ellison. Okay. And then there's uh, uh and then I actually have a third name too, but that's not relevant to the, <laughs> to the, <laughs> to the whole, to the whole process. I, uh, so I have a, I have a band called fluid uh, mm-hmm. that's been relatively inactive for the, for the last 15 years or so. But we did it. We released an album back in 2002, and at that point in time, I thought it would be cool to put a stage name on on as you know in the credits. Um, and so that was when I really first started using that as a name. I also thought it sounded cooler than my my actual name. I don't know if I still share that that thought process on it, but mm-hmm. I own the domain name, so it makes it a little, a little bit easier. Oh, there you go. And yep. uh, com is owned by somebody else, so it's. Uh, that was that was part of it. It's also um, I'm not really hiding the fact that it's me. It's not like it's a, it's a lot of my friends are teasing me and calling me Chris Gaines. If anybody knows that Garth Brooks reference, you'll understand. Um, Garth Brooks put a, decided in the late '90s to put in an album of pop tunes, and he and he developed this character uh, called Chris Gaines. But he actually like wore okay. a wig and stuff. And it was yep. supposed to be the soundtrack to a movie, but the album came out first, and it was so poorly received that that he never made the movie. <laughs> <laughs> At least I don't think he did. And now that uh, having, having said that, I don't know what the music is like. I've never listened to it. So, okay. but some of my friends will tease me and call me Chris Gaines. Um, okay. uh, which is funny. Uh, but it really is just to put sort of a, a, a marketing slot around it to say, you know, this is, you could almost view it as though it's a band name. It just happens to be that I'm the only one in the band. Right. Um, because there are other musical things that I do. There's other things that I want to release. You know, some in some cases it's different genres, and I don't. I think there's lots of people who might be interested in everything that I do, but I also think that there's mm-hmm. lots of people who be like, will like what I do as a singer songwriter, as is evidenced on the EP, but won't necessarily be interested in some of the other stuff that I do. So it's just a it's just a brand name, ultimately. Okay, is what it is. Excellent. But this is the first EP of that. This is genre, the first. This is the first. Uh, this is the first piece of music that I've ever released. Um, as a solo artist, I guess you could say, okay. uh, unless somebody can go back in time and find a couple songs that I had on MySpace and prove prove that I'm <laughs> <laughs> wrong. It's right. the first promoted piece of music. Okay. So, what was Fluid? Uh, is that is that out online? It is actually yes. The album's called cool. Melt. Uh, it's on all streaming services, or at least all the ones that cool. DistroKid was uploading to back in February. Um, I avoided putting it online for a long time because the band wasn't active. Um, and it, it um, you know, it, we put it, we released it in 2002, but we started working on it in like late 98. So there was, you know, it was a, a labor of, it didn't really take that long to make it in terms of hours. It was just, you know, money and stops and starts sure. and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did a lot of the production work on it, um, in particular, like all the overdubs that we that we did on it, um, and 
there's lots of you know it's a it's a it's a piece of history in terms of my own personal work but there's lots of things that I know I could do better now so I kind of right, I kind of rested sure. on that and and what uh so I mentioned my friend Alan earlier he's the drummer in that band and he uh we had some stuff up on uh like CBC radio here in Canada has had a, a music site where artists could upload their own their own things and they and they got rid of that website we had some stuff on myspace which you know is gone now yeah. um, and so eventually slowly but surely all of the couple of little spots that we had a few tunes on have gone away and so he was like when people find out that I'm a drummer and they're like oh tell me about your band he's like they don't want a CD from me. <laughs> They wanted yeah. to be able to just go online. And so finally it was just like, all right, all right. And I gave in. But in a weird way, that was sort of the precursor to this because it, it, it taught me about how uh, modern day digital aggregators work. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was a little resident. I, you know, I wasn't, you'd see, you know, you see all the, I watch YouTube a lot and you see all these guys doing sponsored videos and go, oh, it's really simple. And then you'd read articles like which distributor is better and like all this kind of craziness. And then once I just did it, I was like, oh, that was really easy. So it, it made the yeah. prospect of potentially putting out more music, whether it was with the band or, or not, seem like something that would be really easy to do. And it was. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so this, can you describe just briefly Fluid? Like, how, what, is it, what does that sound like? Because I, I didn't know about that one. I definitely want to check it out. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's stylistically too different than, than, um, than the Ellis and Scott EP. Um, it's, it's maybe a little bit more, it's a little bit more organic cause it's a live band. Um, you yeah. know, it's a real drummer and it's, it's other, you know, there's another guitar player besides myself and, and, and a bass player. Mm-hmm. And then one of the other guys does some backing vocals. So, that, so there's a different timbre to the, to the, to the tunes. Um, yeah. it's a little bit, it meanders a little bit stylistically simply because we were never really clear about exactly what the identity of the band was necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would broadly categorize it as funk blues rock. Awesome. I guess you could say, you know, it was, um, yeah, I don't, it's, um, there's some tunes on there that are a little bit more, um, I hate to use the word jazzy, um, yep. but filled with seventh chords. <laughs> Because that's okay. kind of where we were at. I mean, I still do that now, anyway. Sometimes with certain songs, you know, it's it's just I get I get uh, I can I can go down a muso rabbit hole pretty easily if I, if I want to, and the, the listener may or may not care. <laughs> but it's, it's yeah. It's I, kinda... I I've spoken to several guitar players, and it's always a challenge not to get too nerdy. You know, especially you start talking about pedals or amps or or whatever. Being being that this is a biz- more business podcast. Right there, you go. Yeah, it is always yeah. it always is a very tempting uh, prospect to to start nerding out on uh, pedals and amps. So, but yeah, I mean, awesome. I mean, it's it's not. I mean, the the three of the songs that are on um, my EP were were potentially destined to become fluid songs. Anyway, okay. cool. um, because that was my vehicle. We had we had we've done a few shows here and there in the last couple of years. Um, and when I say shows, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to oversell it and make it sound like they were the, these big events. They were just, you know, we played a set at a, um, there was a compilation album we were on back in 2002, 2003, something like that. And, and the, the guy who had, who had done that, um, wanted to do a greatest hits kind of package. And I think he, I think he was primarily doing it because he realized that the, 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 the series had maybe run its course cause he hasn't done another one 
since then mm-hmm. um, because it was all about physical copies, you know, and that's not not where the industry is is at anymore. Right. Um, so we played that. We played a couple of uh, there's some friends of ours have this party every summer in August and we've gone up there. And it, you know, it's, it's actually this really fun thing where there's a there's a it's a horse field, but they've built this permanent stage that's covered covered over. And then uh, they do uh, they they base it on the lunar calendar, so it changes weekends every year. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but they 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 you know they have people camp in the field and a bunch of different people play. And we've gone up and played it a few times. Um, I'm not always available to do it, unfortunately. But and I don't know whether they'll get to to have that party this year. Um, right. So we'd done that kind of stuff. Anyway, we, the the whole the whole thing was that we were leading back towards like you know we should really think about getting back together and doing another record it's it seems terrible that we've because we're all friends we all grew up together you know it's it wasn't like it was some band that where we kind of happened to randomly find each other we're literally all from you know probably a mile <laughs> within each other in terms of where right. we grew up right so that's great so and then the only reason that those those three songs i mentioned were, were possibly going to become fluid songs i demoed them and uh, wasn't sure what was going to happen with them, and then and then we started to do some things, and literally we had a jam in this room that I'm in right now, on a Saturday, yeah. and on the Monday was when they instituted the state of emergency in Nova Scotia. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of the impetus to even record the EP in the first place. It was like, well, geez, I don't know, even know if I'm going to get to, you know, I'm 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 home now all the time with a lot of time on my hands. Right. Uh, I'm not getting to play live at all. I don't know when I'm going to be able to have you know, my friends back in my house again so that we can work on music collectively. Um, and just sort of realize it's like, you know what, these, there's lots of songs. I've got dozens of songs that I've never demoed or recorded or, and uh, I don't want to say that they're all great songs, but the fact that I, that I'm able to write as often as I do is, or as much as I do, because I, because in Influid, I wasn't the only writer, but I'm the primary writer. Right. So right. the sound of the band becomes the sound of the four guys. Um, but I'm like, I don't want to wait around for, for that to happen to, for me to make music. You know, I gotta, yeah. I gotta do this. So, so I did notice the other thing on your, uh, and I'm sure this is definitely crept into music. I definitely hear a little bit, but, um, given how underrated the, uh, I wanted to touch on King's X <laughs> cause I'm a, I'm massive fan and I, I don't know anyone who who just likes that band. It's either you don't know them or you're in. You know they're amazing. I love King's X. Yes. <laughs> it's surprising. Uh, I would not have heard that in there at all. Like it wasn't. I wasn't thinking about King's X when I made any of those songs. Um, but you're not the first person to mention that. And every, of course, you know everybody that's mentioned it. Of course, knows King's X. Like you said, right. you either know them and love them, or you or you don't know know who they are at all. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, it wasn't intentional, but they're a they're a, you know, they're they're a great band. They're 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 heavy, at mostly mm-hmm. most of the time. They're not always super heavy, but they're you know it's grindy, growly guitars, um, amazing vocal harmonies, and and I've seen them live, and they are amazing vocal harmonies live too. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what's not to like. <laughs> right. No. So the, my story, I've seen him, uh, what, three times now? Yeah. Um, and, oh, but going back to Nikki, I know Nikki's a massive, massive fan as well. Yeah, I could see that. Um, um, but 
I saw them open for Satriani and Dream Theater on a double bill, and I walked away from that show being absolutely blown away by them. Had you know- and I and honestly, I'd heard I'd had their CDs already. Like I didn't like it wasn't the first time I knew about them, but it was the first time I'd seen them live. Right. I was way at the back of the the. Uh, it was an outdoor um, venue in Boston, and the sound sucked honestly because we were right at the back where it, the the um, the waves were kind of starting to distort, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't great. But like just the the sheer you know wall of sound off the stage, just you know I was like fan, and now I'm like way up. Here. Yeah. So it was just absolutely. I crazy. I've uh, I've seen them. It's funny. I I can say that I've seen them three times, but those three performances were all in the same venue, sort of within the same three days, because they were on the Kiss Cruise a few years ago. Yep. And uh, they were great. Yeah, I mean, and and to a King's X fan, the set that they did was kind of a greatest hits, I guess. Mm-hmm. There were a few tunes um, that they played that I didn't know um, because I didn't, at that point, hadn't heard every single record. Mm-hmm. Um, because they've they've done a lot of, I mean, there's, you know, I kind of I kind of lost track of them a little bit after uh, Ear Candy, which was the yeah. last one they did for Atlantic, and then the last studio record that they put out. Um, which I guess is probably called 15. I think it's X, mm-hmm. XV is how it's... A- XV, um, yep. Well, I bought that one and I didn't even know it was out. I, I happened to was, it was in a CD store and, and saw it and I was like, what that? You know, so I grabbed that. Um, but yeah, every single time, they're one of those bands uh, on the on the Kiss Cruise that I you know had to say to my friends, like, you know, because to touch on the cruise again a little bit, one of the things that happens on there is that there's so many performances going on and uh, and I I would imagine if you were on a cruise like the Monsters of Rock cruise, which I've never been to, but has even more bands, you've kind of got to pick and choose who you're going to go see when because there's multiple stages. So for me, I was like, when Kings X are playing, I'm going to be there. So if you guys don't want to go see Kings X, you know where I'll be. <laughs> sort, right. sort of things because I went to every single show. I'm like, I'm not missing a single note of this. Wow. I waited 25 years to see them. I don't know it when or if I'm going to get to see them again. And I not, not to bring anything sad up, but I just read this morning that Doug, Doug Pinnock's mother passed away this morning. Yep. So I, I read that too. It's yeah, uh, that's a you know, my heart goes out to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so going back to another guest, I saw um, first time I saw the Lights Out, which is episode seven. Great band. They opened for Jelly Jam. Which oh is, yes, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah Ty, Ty uh, uh, John Myung from Dream Theater and Rod Morgenstein, which was incredible show um but i was waiting outside the venue scrolling through facebook and it announced oh uh king's x tour uh blah 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 and then one of the dates was uh, minnesota and we'd already got tickets to go um see my wife's cousin in minnesota and it was that same week so like oh oh wow that's that's you know killer timing that i uh that was the second time i, I just saw him in New Hampshire a couple of years ago as well, which was really, really killer. Um, that was an evening with, there was no support act. So that was, that was amazing too. Nice. So awesome. Yeah. Any, any other, um, bands that like really, uh, you know, have influenced you or just like, you know, so important to your, your playing or your sound. Well, if I could turn my computer, you could see there's a wall, not, five feet away from me I have about 1500 CDs 
So I don't know if I could. Oh, you'll have to get a picture of it. I don't know if I could. I don't know if I can answer. And then there's like, you know, another. I still have most of my cassettes from when I was a teenager. And then I've got, you know, like 200 records over here. So there's a lot of bands that I'm fans of, that I'm a fan of. And I'm I'm sure there's, um, I'll give you a perfect example. Actually, of a band that is a huge influence that I had not thought of it as being an influence. Um, Mm. And that was Great White. Okay. And I don't know that it necessarily shows up in the in the songwriting on this EP. Uh, but I had, you know, they were a band that was successful in the late 80s and I kind of got really into them and 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 as I tend to do with a lot of bands went through and and found everything that I could out of the catalog. Um and then because of when I was into them, almost everything that I have from them is on is on cassette. I don't have anything on on CD. And I went a very, very long time without having a way of playing any, any of the cassette stuff. Mm. A few years ago, we got a new vehicle and uh, it had Sirius XM as one of the features in it. So I was like, sure, we'll, you know, we'll get it. I, you know, I'd heard some of the programming on the, the various stations that they have before. So I was, I knew about the channels that I, I knew, I knew, already knew which channels I was going to listen to. So I started listening to Hair Nation a lot. Um, yep which was for me a way to reconnect with that music in a way that I, that I wouldn't necessarily just listening at home and they play, you know, it's really only a handful of songs, but they play great white a lot. And Mark Kendall's solos would come on and I'd be like, Oh my God, I totally lifted that from him. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it's, it's, uh, so as a, so in, in the real answer to your question is in terms of, of, influence it 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 depends on the artist so some artists it's the guitar player influence the way that i play um and in that regard i would say that the big influences for me were like uh i was a huge bon jovi fan in high school mm-hmm. I, I wanted to be richie sambora at one point um so his his lead playing had influence on me um zach wild okay had a huge influence on me but yep. i say that specifically his 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 work on on uh specifically the no more tears record actually the solo in my mom coming home is probably one of my favorite guitar solos of all time and it's not complicated it's not a you know it's not like he's well known for his flash and his speed you know um uh satriani i'm a huge satriani fan have been Mm -hmm. since like i guess i discovered satriani just before flying in a blue dream came out Okay. Um, thanks, thanks, thanks to my guitar instructor for that one, and and yeah. and and then and, and, and I already knew who Steve I was because I had the the, the first David Lee Roth solo record. Okay, Eat yep. Him and Smile, which is still one of my favorite records. Um, so those guys have influenced me that way. Not that I play like Joe Satriani or Steve Vai. The thing I like about Joe is his, his sense of melody, mm-hmm. and so I I've you know we'll we'll key in on that quite a bit. But then you go and you look at like. Uh, you know, other bands, and sometimes it's the production. Yep. That I that I keen on on mostly. Um, and I'm and I'm all over the map. Like I love, you know, Hysteria as a record. Super obviously for its time, very overproduced. You know, there's the Mutt Lang. <laughs> His hands are all yeah. over that record, right? Um, yeah. but then I also love, uh, you know, Too Fast for Love by Motley Crue which is from an engineering point of view is like, you know, there's a, there's a, it's raw sounding, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, 
but I don't think I necessarily sound like I don't know that people listening to my my stuff would necessarily go, oh, that guy likes Motley Crue and Def Leppard. You know what I mean? Like they're not necessarily <laughs> going to pick up on that stuff. Um, you mentioned the Stone Temple Pilots thing. Stone Temple Pilots are a huge influence on the way that I that I approach music, um, mm-hmm. and I would couple them in a weird way with Extreme, okay. being being an influence, um, not just because of the guitar playing, but mostly because of the songwriting. And the willingness to be a little different from song to song and have, uh, you know, Extreme did that a little bit. They were more different from record to record than they were yep. from song to song. But if you listen to Pornography, I mean, everybody knows more than words. That was the accidental hit. I don't think they ever knew that it was going to be what it was. Right. Um, if you take that and wholehearted off the record, you think, okay, well, I got a, there's a cool riff rock record in the in the Van Halen school of playing Mm -hmm. which would still be really cool but then there's a little tune on there called when i first kissed you which sounds like a frank sinatra style song right so that was like oh so you don't always have to be in that gear you know what i mean like you can be a little different and stone devil pilots by comparison i think have always been like that too you know there was a a, Mm -hmm. um you know i think the first record core is is pretty straight ahead when you listen all the way through but as you go through their catalog there's 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 a willingness to experiment and a willingness mm-hmm. to embrace different genres and and um my my earliest musical memories in terms of music that i heard as a kid was disco so okay that you know <laughs> i grew up knowing older people who were rock you know rock and rollers are like mm-hmm. you know disco sucks man like you know like or or, or okay. abba right you know that was you know uh, you know it's like why <laughs> you know there's just there's so much to be gleaned from 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 all those different things so yeah, um totally. i don't know if i ever really answered your question necessarily about influences yeah, that but it's great actually my first uh i mean satriani was uh my dad came home with a mixtape from somebody at work and and it was like a mix of uh i think it was a mix of surfing with uh i don't there may have been some flying in a blue dream and the first concert uh outside of our town was uh the extremist. Um, nice. And then, you know, I've seen, I've seen Joe a bunch of times. I can't even count now. Um, but funnily enough, it pornography was the first CD I got. My dad bought a brand new stereo system with a CD and I got uh pornography and ugly kid, Joe America's least. One. Oh, nice. That's and a great record. Unbeknownst to him. I cranked the crap out of pornography because <laughs> it, that the sound, I mean, what was he using? ADA one, uh, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I think so. I don't, uh, I, I tell you, I, it, it's funny, even though I'm a gear head in some ways, um, and I'm a member of a couple of gear forums on Facebook particularly, mm. um, I don't get into the rabbit hole of what each particular guy was using a ton. Um, I, I don't tend to, I just, I just particularly remember him because, um, I, for some reason I picked up a VHS tape of, uh, hot licks or something like yeah. that and it had a bunch of snippets of like jennifer batten and nuno and uh like there was a i think it was a J, jhs kind of um you know almost it, it was like an advertisement and it had george lynch mm-hmm. and ingve bait from their home videos it was yeah, yeah. it was basically an advertisement yeah, but i remember like, those I think tapes nuno was nuno was talking about his uh, ada preamps in that so that's probably just what stuck in my mind but that was such a heavy uh, you know for for our, 13 year old probably i was that was such a heavy album to crank up on and, and and you know 
when no one else is in the in the house because I get into a lot of trouble if they knew I cranked it that loud. <laughs> I I got into that. So I'm just fixing my shoe. I got into that record because uh, uh, we already knew who Extreme were. Um, so in Canada, we had uh, much music was kind of like our equivalent to MTV, and we had a, there was a show. Um, that I think at one point might have been on every af- every afternoon. They did like a 30-minute segment. Um, but it was called the Power Hour, and it was the, the you know, the rock and metal show. Yep. And they would play, um, you know, they would get into playing the thrash bands, especially later in the 80s. Uh, but mostly it was what we would now call hair metal, because that, that was, that was the pre- as far as commercial success was concerned, that was the preeminent genre. And they played, they played Mother from the first Extreme record. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, so, what used to happen? This is gonna, this is it's a funny story to me. Maybe maybe your listeners will think it's funny. Uh, so my friend Philip and I, uh, who was a bass player back then, we would uh, you know we would get off. We we were bused to high school, so we would catch the school bus home, and uh, the bus right across the street from his house was a corner store, and that was where the one of the stops for the bus. So we would get off. Sometimes we'd go into the store and you know get snacks or whatever. And then we would go back to his place, and we would play uh, original Nintendo, Nintendo Entertainment System. We would play <laughs> Super Mario Brothers, um, and we would listen to tunes. And mm. and uh, I remember he, we we saw that video for for Extreme. And so by the time I don't know how long the record had been out when we first heard it, but it it didn't seem like it was a tremendous length of time before next thing you know there's an there's a new Extreme album coming out. So and I made my mom buy it. <laughs> I I have I have the, I've I've some funny memories of when I was a kid of like making my mother go to the record store. I'm like, no, it's coming out soon. Like it's you know, and I didn't know about release dates and all that kind of stuff. Right? I was just like, you got to call the record store. You got to call the record store. So uh, so yeah, that was that was how we got that record. And uh, and the first song that that I heard off that was actually Decadence Dance because that was the first that was the first video. That's probably how I I got into them. I, it's a bit hazy, but I'm pretty sure that's that's the video that that got me into them. So well, and and for me, I was already I would have been seventeen probably when when Porn Graffiti came out. So I was and I had been playing for a couple of years, you know, and was and was um, pretty competent from what I remember. Um, uh, I certainly didn't then and don't now play like Nino, but um, you know, it was a mm. it was a <laughs> It was a. Uh, uh, I remember rec- when records would come out. It was kind of like, uh, it was like the secrets to the universe were going to be revealed <laughs> to you, you know. Um, and the funny thing is, for me, this is going to sound really strange. And I was I was ad- adverse to learning songs off of records, which of course is a ridiculous perspective to have. Um, I think it was largely fed by my own perceived inability to figure them out properly. It was, you know, cause I didn't want to play them wrong. And, and right. the few times that I, that I did try to learn songs off records, well, of course you played them wrong. You know, it's, it's, it's just learning music by ear in that way is a learned skill. And, 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 uh, and I didn't know that, you know, I didn't understand that. So I was just like, well, it kind of sounds right, but it's not really right. I'd rather just have somebody show me how to play it. Right. It, whether or not the person that showed me how to play it and knew how to play it right was, immaterial you know <laughs> just like mm-hmm. i assume they know how to play it since they're willing to show me so um right it also would would uh, i held the viewpoint for the longest time that it would it would ruin my enjoyment it would take the magic away if i knew how it worked 
uh, mm-hmm. you know, which is uh, <laughs> just uh, uh, funny now because now I can hear a tune and and I almost you know most of the time have a have an immediate understanding of what they're doing. Whether I can right. you know can pick up a guitar and play it for you right away or not, that's another story. But I'm like, oh yeah, okay, it's this. Like you know, just right. But, but that's just years yeah. of doing it now. You know. Um. So yeah, my my non. I, I've, I've started to dub this the non-quickfire question round because it usually uh, is quite quite an undertaking. Um, <laughs> what what significant negative experience have you overcome, and what did it teach you? Ooh, that is a that is, I can see why this is not the quickfire round. What significant mm-hmm. negative? Uh, hmm. I don't know if I could pinpoint one specific event in my life or or thing. I can think about times in my life where my mindset probably was not the best. Um, and it was only living through sort of a culmination of experiences that, that taught me. Um, I've discovered that when you, when you constantly have the same challenges all the time, it's probably because you're trying, you know, to fr- to frame it in a sort of a spiritual way, it's it's the universe is trying to teach you something, and you keep having the same lesson over and over because you didn't learn it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think f- for me, I don't know. I don't know. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking back to a time in my life when I wasn't necessarily the the the. I've always struggled with um, uh, temper. Believe it or not. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, that's always been a, been a challenge for me. Um, it's, it's, it's twofold. One is actually being, you know, having a, a temper, but also being, um, I tend to be pretty cut and dry sometimes with people and they perceive that as me being angry sometimes when I don't, I don't mean them to, or I don't, right. I don't mean it to be, be that way. Um, and it's, uh, that's been tricky. That being said, like I said, there there were times when I when I you know especially as especially as a young man. Um, mm. I don't know why I just did a fake British accent there, but it just it just made me think of the of of. I, I feel profiled. <laughs> Sorry, it wasn't intentional. I just I just. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's uh, uh, yeah. I mean, when I was so like I mentioned earlier, I became a father in my early twenties, which was uh, you know not expected. Um, and it, it was, uh, so maybe, I mean, that's probably the, the, all of the things that I was just thinking about in my head all are after that. They all, they all happened in, in the early stages of my daughter's life. Um, not directly related to her, um, but just directly related to trying to figure out like, uh, okay, so now I am, you know, basically moving from being a, uh, a shithead teenager into having to be a father virtually overnight and mm-hmm. and trying to sort of take on the responsibilities that come along with that not just to 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 take care of another human being but to um maintain a a some form of a healthy relationship um which didn't happen you know we we i haven't been i i get along with my daughter's mother great now <laughs> Uh, and, and have for many, many, many years. But, um, you know, we were not, you know, there was some toxicity there. And, mm-hmm. 
I'm sure on both of both of our parts. And it was because we were young and we didn't know, you know, we were we were in over our heads with regards to the circumstances that we were in. Um, and I was having a really hard time with the idea that I wasn't a rock star. You know, right. emotionally, I was having a hard time with that. I don't know that being a rock star would have been a good thing for me to be at that particular point in time because, right. uh, you know, it, it would, it would, um, I can only imagine what, you know, what can happen to your ego if it's already not healthy. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess that would be, you know, it's, it's a, it's not a very specific event, like a one time thing. It's sort of a broader time in my life sure. period, but that, that would be, um, it taught me to be a little bit more I I went for a long time when I would when I would meet. I'm sure this happens to everybody at at some point in their lives. I see it happen with some of my younger uh, male friends. Anyway, I don't know if I don't know if women feel the same way. Um, but I'd look at behavior of people that were younger than me, and and uh, you know maybe be a little bit judgmental about it in, in my in my mind. Anyway, um, and the and the thing I would always say would be like, oh, life just hasn't kicked them hard enough in the crotch yet. <laughs> You know, like there's certain things, there's certain things that it's like, you know, they say we don't, that as a species, we don't, we tend to repeat history an awful lot. And I think it's because as a species, we're all, um, you know, we're all fundamentally having to learn the same lessons. And some of us are fortunate enough to, to have environments where we get those lessons shown to us by people and other, other, others of us don't really get those lessons until we live through them ourselves. For sure. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so next up would be what major positive experience has given you the encouragement to uh, follow this journey? Uh, well, in terms of framing it more recently, I would say watching watching my wife's success and what she does cool. in terms of motivating me to to um, you know this EP in in relative terms it happened overnight. Not literally overnight, but you know, it was a it was a pretty quick process. Uh, but the but the the journey leading up to the decision to do it was not an overnight process, you know. Right. Um, and the negative thing that that kicked it into gear, of course, was the was the coronavirus. But um, just in terms of uh, leading up to myself feeling like I was capable of doing it, in terms of you know, not just making the music, but actually just putting it out in, in, into the world, so to speak. Um, you know, she and I are, are much different, uh, much different temperaments, much, she's a, she's a extrovert through and through. And I tend to be, uh, despite what I do for a living, I tend to be a little bit more withdrawn and introverted. And so it's a, it's a little trickier for me to be a little bit, um, uh, put it all out there, so to speak, you know, um, I'm, I find it funny. I read a quote the other day that said, uh, "Perfectionism is just another form of procrastination," mm-hmm. and I've never seen yeah. it sum up, summed up. I mean, I already thought that anyway through conversations that Elise and I have had, um, but I'd never seen it summed up so succinctly in that fashion. Right. And it's true; it's it's absolutely true. You know, like I mentioned earlier when we were talking about the Fluid album, like the thing that kept you know, it's been available if you know one of us because we've got. You know, I probably still have 200 CDs in the back room, um, mm-hmm. you know, to, to get copies of it, but it hasn't been widely available, you know. Right. And that was because I was the one 
with I should I should mention that none of the other guys in the band have the have the technical know-how necessarily um or are interested in being the guy that's responsible for uploading it to the, to the internet so it, it that that fell upon that responsibility fell upon me and it was easy to procrastinate because it was like well it, that album's not perfect right, right? right you know so i went through a long time where i actually debated about remixing it and you know putting pitch correction on things and on all that kind of stuff and i was like that would that because of the format that that album was recorded in on the I don't know bore everybody but because of the way that the way the multi tracks are stored it would have been it would have been a very very time consuming endeavor to do that um, and then eventually it was just like just do it just put it out just just you know just see what happens and so that mindset is something that I've gotten from Elise quite a bit because that's what she teaches people to do. You know, she's not, I'm not even one of her clients and I, nor, nor could I, nor could I be in the, in the, you know, and we're, we're far too close to, for that to really work. But, okay. um, but she's still, you know, she's her way, you know, what she does with her, her work is, as as is extremely inspiring. Um, you know, she's, she's, she's helped. She helps people every day. That's what she does. That's awesome. All right. So the, the big one is what does music mean to you? Oh, everything. That would be the, that's the short answer, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I don't, I don't remember a time when I didn't, when I didn't, um, want to play music. I mean, I, I, I do have memories of like seeing a, a, a police officer on a, on a, on a motorcycle, you know, when I was probably mm-hmm. three or four and, and, and being like, that's cool. I want to do that. In retrospect, I think what I really wanted to do was ride the motorcycle, but which I still have <laughs> never done. I've never driven a motorcycle, but, um, the, uh, once music really entered my life and sort of the idea that like, Hey, this is something that people do. I don't even know if it, it occurred to me that it was something that you could do for a job necessarily early, early on. It was just like people make mm-hmm. music. I, I, when I went to, um, Harris in Toronto, uh, one aspect of that course, when I was there anyway, is they had a, uh, um, a music history course, which was the gentleman who taught it, taught there at the time, his name is Matt Vanderwood. And he was, uh, um, uh, I, I haven't seen him since my time there, so I don't know what he's up to these days, but he was also a professor of, uh, music history at at york university in toronto and you know and a musicologist so he was basically a music historian mm-hmm. and i remember specifically he was the first person i ever heard him say music is something you do mm-hmm. now i'd been playing music for 10 years at this point you know as far as playing guitar on a regular basis um but that's really what it comes down to. I mean, I'm sure if anybody's ever heard any musician interviewed before, they've, they've. I mean, you can even see it when you see, you know, if you watch American Idol or any of those shows, and and people don't make it through, and they're, they're, they're devastated. You know, now their their mindset may may not have been the best going in in terms of recognizing what their abilities were in terms of their chances of succeeding at the program. That being said music is everything to people you know to, to to some people and to me it's it certainly was and pursuing it as something that i did on a regular i mean my the the joke that i always make with people in terms of playing cover music uh which is something that i resisted for a long time um but now when i do it i, I always laugh i'm like i always feel like i just ripped somebody off 
and I, and I don't mean that in the sense that they didn't get the gift of me playing music in their in their venue. What I mean is, um, I would have been playing music anyway at home, mm -hmm. on, you know, whether it was on the couch or here in front of the computer, and, and you know, um, it's just it's it's a music almost is a way of being, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. You know, I think that's why we respond so viscerally to it. You know, like everybody knows, everybody's got music that they love and could listen to on repeat forever. And then everybody's got music that they hear. And as soon as they hear it, it they're like repulsed and they need to like get away, <laughs> get away from it or turn it off. And, and you know, um, but that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to trigger an emotional thing, you know whether it's right. joy or, or happiness or sadness or anger, or, you know, mm -hmm. I don't want to make people angry, but at the same time, it's likely, you know, some people are going to be triggered by it. Right. For sure. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, so if people want to find out about you, um, about the new EP, where do they go? Uh, the best source right now is probably, uh, I've got a, I've got a Facebook page, which is Ellison Scott music. Uh, you can also find Ellison Scott Music on Instagram. Um, I've also got another Instagram handle, which is Scott O'Caster. Um, and those are probably the three best places to find out anything about me and my music. If you search Ellison Scott on your music listening platform of choice, um, cool. you should find it. That's awesome. Um, and then uh, finally, I'd like to play a song at the end. So which song off the EP or maybe it's something off of Fluid. Would you like me to play? Uh, no, I think I'd like to hear something off the EP. I think you said you were a, f a fan of Too Many Times, which is track four. Yeah, because it's got, it's got a cool uh, STP type riff. It's ve it is very similar to an STP type riff. Um, uh, it's... Uh, uh, I mentioned them earlier. They're 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 a band that, I, that I'm influenced. That's actually funny enough. That's the oldest song on the on the EP, mm. with regards to writing. Anyway, actually, it's probably the oldest. The seeds of the recording are probably the oldest too. But that's that's not it, the seeds of the recording are not nearly as old as the song itself is. <laughs> <laughs> as indicated, you can tell how old that song is by the fact that uh, in the second verse, I mention I say the word paper. In reference to a newspaper and seeing a newspaper in it, like the thought, you know, in the conceptually in the lyric, it's like you saw 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 the paper in the news box, right, and I'm right. like, you don't see newspapers in boxes on the street corner anymore. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't doesn't happen. But I thought about changing the lyric, um, but nothing that I came up with that was topically more accurate in terms of now flowed right. as nicely. So I was like, well, I'm just gonna leave it. There you go. You know. Absolutely. But that's another that's another example of just letting it go. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a great a great chat. Um, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So continued success for the EP and any um, additional music. Definitely want to keep in touch and uh, you know stay safe out there. Thanks, Simon. Thanks to Scott for joining me for this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Now. I have always aimed to keep my podcast focused on being positive and showing a good example through empathy and my own actions. As I record this outro, watching the events play out across the country, I cannot continue to have this platform and stay silent about what is going on. 
The last couple of days have begun to erode my attempt at keeping my positive and hopeful outlook on life, and I'm honestly losing hope in humanity. Despite the work of many human rights activists and well-meaning legislatures across many decades, seems we as a species have learnt nothing about empathy and kindness, always seemingly choosing greed and hate of that which is mildly different to our own selves. While I am still reticent to comment on the specifics of current events, because there are so many grey areas of who is actually doing what and to whom at any given time, at least in regards to various protests, and we also remember there is a great deal of manipulation with respect to what we see being reported, I will say this. Every human being on this planet has a right to respect, a right to exist without living in fear for their safety and well-being, a right to fair and unbiased justice whether the victim or the accused, and a right and freedom to protest without retribution. Those who hold authority in office or badge have a primary obligation to protect and serve their communities first, whether that be through direct interaction or as a secondary observer, meaning that they are obligated to speak up and stop injustice whoever is being victimized. We need to look deeply in ourselves, not just to decide whether we have some form of prejudice, but whether or not we will actually stand up and demand change, stand up and fight for those who are being oppressed, and show that we will not accept any form of racism, bigotry, or hatred towards any minority group, not only from those in authority, but more importantly, from those we are close to and have direct influence on. As I say at the end of every episode, keep pushing the needle and be excellent to each other. I implore you to show those around you how to live with kindness and empathy and be a leader in speaking up for any injustice you see. I'll leave you with the aptly titled Too Many Times by Ellison Scott.